going to send our little ones off to their Sunday school now. Bye, kids. Have a great morning learning about Jesus. You two leaders. I feel like I was just up here, man. It's because you were. Right? I should have just stood here the whole time. Uh, no. <laughs> Spare us. Uh, all right. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Keep your Bibles at Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. You're going to take a look at that in a little bit. Keep your Bibles there. If you're not there, you can turn right over there, Matthew 28, 16 to 20. That will be a text we'll get to in a little bit. When we um, first began to gather as a church plant in February of 2012, I preached a series of core sermons, three sermons. We actually began with three sermons. The funny thing is we weren't supposed to begin meeting as a church at that point. We were supposed to continue to pray and equip each other and, and build a core team all the way up into September. And, you know, seven months before that, God said, no, we want you to start. I want you to start meeting as a church. We, ba we basically began meeting as a church instead of trying to figure out how to do church. And so we've been playing catch up ever since, in a sense. But I did preach three core sermons way back in uh, the latter part of February of, of 2012, each sermon was designed to sort of lay out the basics for church planting and the basics for this church. And the elders and I have talked about it several times in between then and now about maybe bringing back some of those sermons, maybe as a way to remind some of us who were there then about what this church is to be about and church planning and those things. And quite frankly, I think most people in this room were not with us at that point. It's amazing how people come and go, and it's just the way it is. But uh, so this won't be a refresher course on this. You're probably not going to say to yourself, I remember when you preached those things. Colby will. Uh, and so, but they are to serve as a reminder for uh, the essential things that our church is about. And, and this morning we'll be focusing on why plant churches. Why the church is to plant churches. Why we are to plant churches. We're going to do this next Sunday as well where we'll talk more about who we are as a church. And then the week after that we will begin that series, What We Believe. And so basically just like the next 12 weeks altogether really have to do with just the core essence of who we are. Why planting churches, who we are as a church, and what we believe, if you will. And so I'm pretty excited about all of it. And I think it's a good thing to kind of go back and revisit kind of where you started. You know, so often in the journey of life and faith, we kind of forget the first things. Was it the church of Ephesus that was warned about that in Revelation? You forgot your first love? Me? It's amazing that a church could forget its first love being Jesus. <laughs> yeah, it happens. And so we want to be reminded of what we're to be about. Now, when you I remember this so clearly uh, before we actually started meeting, before I had, you know, God had brought a handful of guys who would be groomed to be elders over time. They would be the first families of this church. Before I even got to that point, shortly after I started talking to my wife about planning a church, you know, and she was like, are you stupid? You know, are you crazy? Are you out of your mind? You know, and, and I was like, yes, yeah, I'm a fool for Jesus. You need to be one too. 
But, you know, after we, she kind of became persuaded through much prayer and all that, and God worked out kind of the details of what that would look like that for her. I, I love how practical my wife is and how wives are. They, 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 you know, they have faith in these things, but they like to see little tangible things that kind of help them along the way. And God had brought in these different things that would, you know, homeschool and these components that would help to convince her that I've got your back, let's go out and do this thing. And so once she became convinced, I was already convinced, and we began to talk about it with lots of different people. And, and, and whenever you bring up church planning with people, people say, that's amazing, that's awesome. But most of the time, people are like, What? They begin to ask questions, and, and they, you know, they have certain thoughts and concerns. And, and I remember one guy actually had, had told me, you know, a long time ago, he said, you know, but what if it doesn't work out? Then you'll be unemployed. And I said, I'm planting a church. I'm going to be unemployed as I do it. There's not much to lose. <laughs> you know, it's, I had to go get a job. I had to leave behind my pastor's salary and, and go into the secular workforce, you know. And so, but anyways, I've got a couple of questions that, that people asked then, and they asked these questions. Hey, we're, we're thinking about planting a church. We're praying about planting a church. And here's, here's one sort of question or objection in a way, and something that I heard. The first one would be, don't we already have enough churches in our community? I mean, every time I drive down the street, you know, I, I, there's, there's a church on a corner. And so don't we already have enough churches? This is a question. It's a legitimate question, I think. Secondly, they would say, you know, we'll... Planting new churches sort of cannibalize the existing churches. Basically, you plant a new church, are you just going to pretty much take believers from other churches and put them in your church? That's a great concern. That was something that people asked. Thirdly, aren't we, like, you know, as Christians, as pre-existing churches, aren't we obligated to help existing churches before planting new churches? There's plenty of churches out there already, Phil. It's not a bad thing that you want to do. But there's a lot of churches that maybe could use your help or support or, or, you know, maybe you should just go to work for another church and do it that way instead of planting new churches. There's plenty of churches out there that are hurting. There's plenty of churches out there that, that need more believers and faithful people and, and these sorts of things. And, and so those were three things. And, and those statements, those questions, those concerns really appear to be sort of common sense based to many people. It's just kind of common sense. But they rest upon several wrong assumptions. And I don't mean to say this in a condemning way at all. I mean, those are the first things that came to my mind when I started talking about planning a church. And I thought about these very same things. And they are concerns, but they're based on some false assumptions. <clears throat> they're based on several wrong assumptions. The error of this thinking will become clear as we, as we ask why is church planting so crucially important. You see, the answer to those questions, we have to talk about why we would plant churches, and we have to look at the scripture, and it begins to kind of answer those common sense questions. I love this quote by Tim Keller. He's a pastor in New York, Presbyterian pastor in New York. He said, the vigorous, continual, Planting of new congregations is the single most crucial strategy for, number one, the numerical growth of the body of Christ in any city. Number two, the continual corporate renewal and 
revival of the existing churches in a city. He says nothing else, not crusades, outreach programs, parachurch ministries, growing megachurches, congregational consulting, nor church renewal processes will have the consistent impact of dynamic, extensive church planting. And he says this is an eyebrow-raising statement, but to those who have done any study at all, it is not even controversial. Now, I think that's a fantastic statement. And its he's an intellect, so it's kind of hard to, to grasp. But what he's basically saying is the best thing for reaching people is planting churches. And the best thing to revive pre-existing churches is planting churches. It's kind of silly on that one, right? You already have churches that exist. How does planting a new church bring, in a sense, some level of revival and resuscitation to pre-existing older churches? It It does! Somehow, when churches that have been around for a while see a new church pop up and people coming and people getting saved in the work of God, it kind of resuscitates them. And so it's, it's an interesting thing. Now, we could, we could base our motivation for planting churches, I think, on Keller's statement. I mean, it's a dynamic, amazing, in-depth statement. There's a, a ton of research in these things that have been done. He didn't just come up with this paragraph and just thought, well, I think church planning would be a good thing. He's done a ton of statistical research and biblical study to arrive at this conclusion. So there's a tremendous amount of truth behind what he has said, but we want to be a church that first seeks the scriptures for answers and direction. I don't want to sound critical, because I do sound critical so often when I preach, and I don't mean to be critical and I'm not always completely accurate. Certainly aim to be. But we do live in an age, anyone who knows anything about this age in church, we live in an age where the scriptures are not a first thing. It's not critical to say it. It's reality. The scriptures are not the first thing or even the second thing or even the third thing that church leaders go to. And I've said this time and time again, there is way too much people watching in the church. Pastors are watching other pastors. Pastors are watching other ministries. Pastors are, wa pastors are watching other lay leaders and other believers, and, and that's where they're getting their insights and their strategy for planting churches or for doing just about anything. And... I'm guilty of this. You know, I was one of the first people to jump on the purpose-driven bandwagon. Um, you know, I myself have swam many, many laps in the main stream. And, and I, I, I'm not justifying my behavior. I think so much of what I do at times and what we do at times is based on ignorance and not knowing the word. And so if somebody says that something's good and they show that it's good and it has sort of this pragmatic kind of hinge to it and it looks like it works and we say that looks good and we ultimately want to glorify God, so let's just jump on that bandwagon. Instead of actually stopping and slowing down and thinking and discussing with godly people and studying the scriptures. I mean, I'm guilty of this. I've done this many, many times. I've swam in that stream. And pastors are essentially today turning to other pastors. And even worse, they turn to the culture or to the corporate realm for direction. I 
an example of this I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> I just read a lot of stuff. Anybody else a big internet reader? You know, you read a lot of blogs and stuff. I mean, I like to read books. I like to read the Bible, heaven forbid. But, you know, I read a lot of blogs and stuff, and, and I just stumbled across this blog. Uh, I read blogs on the Patheos website occasionally. It's not the best website, but I do read stuff there. And, and I stumbled across a perfect example of what I'm talking about here, and it was a, a blogger who wrote, you got to read this, and he wrote, six things the church can learn from Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I watch Jimmy Fallon once in a while. He's pretty hilarious. I don't watch him to glean insights on how to lead the church. I don't say, Jimmy, teach me how to plant a church. Jimmy, teach me how to make disciples. Jimmy, teach me how to study the word. Jimmy, teach me how to pray. I say, Jimmy, teach me how to laugh. Teach me how to act a fool. And it sounds silly, right? I mean, it just sounds silly that, you know, you would have pastors or leaders in the church saying, man, we can learn something about how to do church from Jimmy Fallon. It sounds so silly, and it is silly, but it's what so many today do. So many do this. Now, this isn't to say that there doesn't exist some valuable information out there. I mean, truth is truth. Um, but it is to say that God has given us his word, which contains all the answers and information and direction we will ever need for life and ministry. Did you hear what I said? Even for life. It's all in scripture. It depends on whether we have the ability to study it and discern it, but it's all there. And so we always want to turn to the word of God. We want to turn to the word of God. Why plant churches? We want to turn to the word of God. Now, I want to ask that primary question again. Again, why plant churches. I'm going to give you four reasons. Four reasons. I think you can write them down. We don't do the slides and all that because I remember what I used to do when we had slides up there is I'd just stare at the slide and not hear what he was saying. And so I don't even really want you to look at me. I don't care if you see me. You need to hear me. Four reasons why to plant churches. Number one, there is a biblical mandate to plant churches, and we need to be true to it. There is a biblical mandate to plant churches. It's in the scripture, and we need to be true to it, right? Let me give you a couple examples. A, Jesus called for churches to be planted. He really did. Virtually all the great evangelistic challenges of the New Testament are basically calls to plant churches, not simply to share the faith. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, is, is not just a call to make disciples, but to baptize, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost, teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded. In Acts and elsewhere, it is clear that Baptism means incorporation into a worshiping community with accountability and boundaries. And that is seen so plainly in Acts 2.41 to 47. And we have so often been told that baptism basically in its essence is, is just simply believers coming forward and, and getting dunked to express an inward faith and reality. It's like an outward expression of an inward reality, and it is totally that. But where we fall short in our understanding that it is also, uh, it symbolizes inclusion into the family of Christ, into the fellowship of the church, into uh, being the bride of Christ, if you will. 
So it's not just this sort of thing that's an expression of faith, it's also an expression of belonging. Belonging to what? A local church and the church universal. The only way to truly um, ensure that you are increasing the number of Christians in a town is to increase the number of... Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm supposed to ask that as a question. Oh, never mind. I've lost my place. What happens when you ad-lib when you preach? Well, I'll start right here. Okay. The only way to be truly sure you are increasing the number of Christians in a town is to increase the number of churches. Why? Much traditional evangelism aims to get a decision for Christ. Experience, however, shows us that many of these decisions disappear and never result in changed lives. How many of you have seen this? How many of you have experienced this with people that you know? Man, I tell you what, I used to be one of those guys, you know, when I first got saved, I was inviting everyone I knew to church. Everyone I, you know, I worked in the secular work field. Everyone at work and all these things, I was crazy about this stuff. I'd bring them. And my whole Hope, every time I brought them on a Saturday night to Big Valley, was that somehow Rick would invite people to pray a prayer and that that person would do it and they'd be saved. And woohoo, we'll celebrate and we got another Christian in the whole thing. And that even happened a handful of times with people that I knew. And not long after, they were right back to doing what they were doing. There was no change. Why... Does this phenomenon exist? Well, because many decisions are not really conversions, but often only the beginning of a journey of seeking God, maybe. We could look at it like that. Now, other decisions, I think, for Christ are very definitely the moment of a new birth, but this differs from person to person. Only a person who is being evangelized in the context of an ongoing worshiping and shepherding community can be sure of finally coming home into vital, saving faith. This is why a leading church planting expert like C. Peter Wagner can say, planting new churches is the most effective evangelistic methodology known under heaven. You know, in some ways we could say that what Christ actually does is he saves people right into the church. They immediately become a part of the church universal, invisible in a sense, but also a local church. Does it make any sense? Would it make any sense for Christ to save people and to leave them outside of the church and they just go back to doing what they would be doing? No. B, Paul's whole strategy was to plant urban churches. Really, we have been studying his ministry for months and months and months in the book of Acts. This is something we've seen over and over and over. The greatest missionary in history, the Apostle Paul, had a rather simple two-fold strategy. First, he went into the largest city of the region. We see that in Acts 16, 9 and 12 and in other places. And second, he planted churches in each of those major cities. Titus 1, 5, where he said, appoint elders in every town. Once Paul had done that, he could say that he had fully preached the gospel in a region and that he had no more work to do there, Romans 15, 9 and verse 23. This means that Paul had two controlling assumptions. The way to most permanently influence a country was through its chief cities. And that is so true. Paul went into the major cities, not just to hold a crusade, not just to get 
decisions and to fill out decision cards or any of those things, but to actually plant churches. As well as the way to most permanently influence the city was to plant churches in it, as I said. This is what he did. We so often look at Matthew 28 as just a kind of a, you know, a call to believe, and that's kind of it, you know. Go out and preach the gospel in, in, in every nation and, and kind of leave it there and people will get saved and they'll be added to the church in a sense. But I, I don't think at all that's the true meaning of it. It means to plant churches. And this is exactly what Paul did when we look at the book of Acts in every city that he went to. And he went to primary cities, Philippi, Corinth, Athens. These are primary cities. It's not to say that he didn't go and do ministry in smaller towns and stuff. He did. But he was strategic in his approach. He wanted to plant churches in urban cities, the big ones. It's, it would be through these examples that a mandate is set forth. You know, it would be very difficult for any of us to locate in the New Testament maybe the words that say, go plant churches. We're not going to find it that way, but it is there through a multitude of examples, especially in the ministry of Paul. We have a biblical mandate that is set forth in biblical patterns for how Paul planted churches in these things. And with the Lord's words alone in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is this mandate that comes to us through these examples. I remember when Paul, reading a while ago, he said to the Corinthians to imitate him. Was he referring to one aspect of his person? Maybe one aspect of his ministry? Or was he referring to his whole person and his whole ministry? I believe it is the latter. I believe when Paul said, imitate me, he meant imitate all that I do and say. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And guess what would be included in imitating him? Planting churches, because he was a church planter. And that's in... Corinthians, another great example of how it's a mandate, how we are to do these things. And I, and I think we've got to be resolved. We've got to get to this level of understanding and be resolved in this. There's no way to escape these things. Okay? And there's such a strong tendency for us who have planted a church. You know, there's churches that have been around for 30 years and never planted another church. And you figure once you've planted a church, you've sort of reached the goal. No, it's plant churches. Churches that plant churches that plant churches that plant churches. Now I'm not faulting churches that have been around for 30 years and never planted churches. Hopefully they'll begin to obey that aspect of Matthew 28. But churches should be constantly thinking out, praying through, planning, asking God to lead to plant additional churches. Because we need to be planting and planting and planting and planting. There's no escape here. It's not just preach the gospel and make a few disciples here and there and do that out on you know, J Street. It's plant churches that make disciples. We must be true to this mandate. Now the second reason why we are to plant churches. First was there's a biblical mandate. Second is just like it. We want to be true to the Great Commission. I've alluded to this over and over and over. Jesus' call, and I, I, I keep saying these things, and I, I'm very re, you know, repetitive because I need to pound this into my head. Jesus' call in Matthew 28, more specifically 18 through 20, was not for the apostles to go to every nation to do crusades or hold revival meetings or any of those things. Not that those things are inherently bad, 
but it was for, you know, not just for the purpose of gaining converts. It was so far beyond that. And here's what will be key for all of us today is to get this down that Matthew 28 is a call to plant churches. Let's look at it briefly. Matthew 28, I'm going to focus on 18 through 20. Let's just look at it. Jesus begins by saying, and this is at the completion of his ministry, he's about to ascend into heaven and to take his rightful place at the right hand of God where he left and stepped down out of glory to redeem us and to save us. He's about to return to that awesome place of sovereignty and leadership. And he says this to the apostles, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Basically, he's saying, I am speaking to you right now. I am speaking to you as one who has all authority over all that exists and all that you cannot see, including heaven. So what? Pay careful attention to what I'm about to say. In fact, these could be some of the most important words that we're about to read that Jesus ever said, ever, ever, especially to the apostles. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am speaking to you as one with all authority, not partial, not a little bit. I'm not partially sovereign. I, I, you know, I, I don't just rule and reign over series. All authority in heaven and earth over all of creation. So pay careful attention. And what does he say right after that? Pay attention to me. I'm the boss. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. What? Make followers or students, methedes, of me, of Jesus Christ in every nation. Go to every nation and do this. And he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What does he mean here? He means, I want you to immerse them into me, in a sense, and into the body of the Christian community and fellowship through the rite of baptism. You see, here's a deeper meaning of baptism. Not just an expression of faith, but an expression of belonging. Belonging to what? Random Christians going into communities, preaching the gospel, then leaving? That's not belonging to anything. Belonging in what Paul did, planting local churches. Immerse them into me and into the body of the Christian community and fellowship through the rite of baptism. Baptism is not merely an outward sign of faith. It is also a rite of passage into the fellowship of the church. That is the deeper meaning of Acts 2.41 through 47. And I've always wondered at how a person gave their life to Jesus in 1979, but in 2014 they finally got baptized. So in a way, you, well, first of all, you waited that long to express your faith, in a sense, in a very profound and important biblical sense, the most important, I would say, maybe next to living, I don't know, but that you also waited to be immersed into the community? It's a bewildering thought. You see, this is the meaning of baptism, and so you waited that long to really join the fellowship. You were a part of the fellowship the whole time, but you didn't belong in a baptism sense. How tragic. And then he says in 20, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now you just think about that right now. How can you do that without churches? 
You certainly can't do it with one preacher talking to you every week. You need the whole body using and expressing all of its time and talent or whatever in building you up and building each other up. The only way that we're going to learn to obey all that Christ commanded is in the context of a local church. Now that is not to say that you cannot learn to obey Christ in your personal devotions and reading scripture and prayer, right? I mean, that's, that would be lunacy to say that. We do that. But it is in the context of a local church, in the body, where all the members use their, you know, their parts of the body and they use their talent to shape and form one another. Now, that's not to say that that can't happen in a community group, because it can and in all these other contexts. But for the most part, a community group is just a little extension of a local church. Or maybe it is a local church in its birthing stage. But for the most part, you got to have churches. You can't. I could not, without this local body, without RHC, I could not train my kids in the way of godliness to the level that they need it. They need you. They need Aaron. They need Tracy. They need Cameron. They need to be influenced by a lot of gifted people. In a sense, it's true, and I don't believe it is raising a child is, is a community effort. Parents need to raise their children. But in the church, it's true. Teaching people to obey all that Christ commanded, helping them to become more godly and more holy as they walk in faith is a community, communal effort in the church. All of us working together to help shape one another. You cannot make disciples that obey all without local churches. You can't. It, it's just, it's an impossibility. You must have them. And not just any church, right? See, we tend to think that, well, I think Jesus is in the mix, so everything's cool. Really? Just because they say Jesus once in a while or maybe they got a cross on their campus doesn't necessarily mean that they really believe the whole gospel. we got to be careful of that. It can't be just any church. We just need to plant churches for the sake of planting churches. No, 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 no. We need to plant churches that are biblically immersed. We need to plant churches that are doctrinally sound. We need to plant churches that are gospel-centered. Every week, the preachers preach the gospel. Why? Because that's the only message that saves lost sinners, and that's the only message that sanctifies saved sinners. Over and over and over, you must hear the gospel. Why? Because you, every week, will go to your default mode of trying to earn your way with God, and there is nothing to earn with him in terms of salvation. We must have churches that are committed to prayer. We must have churches, plant churches that are devoted to the sacraments. What is one of the sacraments? What are both sacraments? Communion and baptism. That rite of passage, that welcoming them into the fellowship, that expression of their faith. We must plant churches that are devoted to fellowship. And fellowship isn't just hanging around eating chicken wings. We're having a fellowship night. What did you do? We sat around and ate chicken wings. What else did you do? We sat around and ate chicken wings. What else did you do? We dipped them in ranch sauce. We backed them with a little celery because it was hot. That's not fellowship. That's a potluck. Fellowship is eating the chicken wings and then talking about Jesus. We need to plant churches that are committed to church discipline. This might be the most 
thing that people avoid the most today. They don't want any discipline. Don't correct me when I'm wrong. Don't, don't help me understand where I, where I fall short. Don't, don't spank me on the hiney when I make a mistake. Sometimes I need a good spanking, and my wife, boy, she's got a good switch. But in church, you know, we're a family, aren't we? How many of you have children? How many of you whooped a child's hiney because they got off track? Yes, I, my kids are way older now, and I'll still whoop them if I have to. I know that CPS will come get me, but I'll do it. It's the same thing in the body of Christ. We're all family members in the body of Christ, and and once in a while we get off track. You read Matthew 18. There's different stages of discipline. First is kind of a you know correction. If they repent, wonderful. If not, you got to go with another brother, and it culminates with them removing them from the church if they won't repent because they'll hurt the body. They are hurting the body, and plus it helps for them to realize what they've missed out on and they've left the fellowship and now they're out in the world. And You've got to have churches that are committed to church discipline that don't just, you know, well, we turn the other cheek. You know, I'm reminded of that proverb that says those who do not discipline their children are a willful party to their death. We must plant churches that are committed to church discipline, that they do it biblically, not just beat people up. We must plant churches that are evangelistic and missional. They proclaim the gospel and they go out into the community and, 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 and they preach Jesus. They gossip the gospel wherever they go. And I would say a hugely primary thing here, lastly, would be we must plant churches that are led by the Holy Spirit. And you know one of the greatest ways you'll know if your church is led by the Holy Spirit? How, does that, how do the elders at that church preach? Do they preach right through the Bible line by line? Or do they, today we're going to talk about lust and throw 50 verses at it. They're purely topical, eisegetical. You know, if you're going to teach through the Bible line by line, you have to depend on the Holy Spirit because he's leading you through the text. I mean, that's just one way, right? How do, you, how do you know if a church has been being led by the Holy Spirit? One way to know is how do they teach the Bible there? Is the Holy Spirit teaching the Bible line by line or is the pastor carving the word up and doing his thing? And there's other ways to know it. You, you can't say we're led by the Holy Spirit and then not be teaching expositionally in these other things. People claim that all day long today. We are a Holy Spirit on fire, Holy Ghost. We're blazing a, a trail, and, 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 and how do we know that? What books are you teaching through in the Bible? Well, we don't teach through books. We deal with subjects, and we do a lot of other things that, that the Spirit's behind. And yeah, No, no. A church that is focused on all those things that I just mentioned Focused on these things is the kind of church that is able to fulfill its part in the Great Commission. Nothing less will do. When Jesus declared Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he knew that the making of disciples would require the planting of new churches. The, even the existence of synagogues in those days was an example of this. The synagogue, the purpose of the synagogue was to proclaim the word and fashion and form people into the image of the coming Messiah, if you will. Synagogues predate the church, and that is an example of how God set little institutions, little places to make disciples. Now, the apostles were keenly aware of what Jesus meant as well. They knew what he meant. They knew it was a mandate. They knew it was a command to plant churches. Now, proof of their understanding is seen in how they planted the church at Jerusalem and in all the other churches like Paul in Macedonia, Achaia, Galatia, and beyond. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 
should be understood as a call to plant churches that make disciples who are baptized and trained to obey all that Christ commanded. Being true to the Great Commission means being involved in church planting and disciple making. Now the third reason why to plant churches. New churches best reach new generations, new residents, and new people groups. I'm going to Keller for this. I'm going to be quoting him. He wrote these three points on this. Great paper he wrote on church planting. Three ways new churches best reach new generations, new residents, and new people groups. A, new generations. Younger adults have always been disproportionately found in newer congregations. Long-established congregations develop traditions such as time of worship, length of service, emotional responsiveness, sermon topics, leadership style, emotional atmosphere, and thousands of other tiny customs and mores, which reflect the sensibilities of longtime leaders from the older generations who have the influence and money to control church life. This, quite frankly, according to Keller and his research, does not reach younger, newer generations. Younger generations, millennials, are not interested. I think they're growing more interested in this, but for the most part, they're not interested in coming in and doing something that 75-year-olds set up 74 years earlier and are doing. Now, I'm not saying that what those 75-year-olds are doing is wrong. They could be liturgical and biblical, and, and maybe there's just a distaste for those things, and I do believe that exists. But for the most part, when you do church and you get things locked into a certain way of doing it, it kind of shuts out newer, younger generations. And you have to be very careful with that. B, new residents. New residents are always, almost always reached better by new congregations. In older congregations, it may require tenure of 10 years before you are allowed into places of leadership and influence. But in a new church, new residents tend to have equal power with longtime area residents. I think what he means there is that, man, new churches, there's new opportunity for new residents, new people that would be coming into the church. Sometimes, you know, when you've been around for a while, you get things down and you got your handful of core people that do everything, and there's no opportunity for new residents or new people. And then C, new people groups. New socio-cultural groups in a community are always reached better by new congregations. For example, if new white-collar commuters move into an area where the older residents were farmers, it is likely that a new church will be more receptive to the myriad of needs of the new residents, while the older churches will continue to be oriented to the original social group. And new racial groups in a community are best reached by a new church that is intentionally multi-ethic from the start. For example, if an all-Anglo neighborhood becomes 33% Hispanic, a new deliberately biracial church will be far more likely to create cultural space for newcomers than will an older church in town. Finally, he says, brand new immigrant groups nearly always can only be reached by churches ministering in their own language. If we wait until a new group is assimilated into American culture um, enough time, uh, if we wait for them to assimilate into our culture, speaking the language and these things, that's going to take years and years and years without reaching them with the gospel. 
And he summarizes, he says, new congregations empower new people and they do it much more quickly and readily than older churches. Thus, they always have and always will reach them with greater facility than long-established bodies. This means, of course, um, that church planting is not only for frontier regions or pagan, uh, pagan countries that we are trying to see become Christian. You know, typically we think of planting churches and missions as going overseas. He's saying, no, we need to do it right here because we have emerging generations, emerging residents, and emerging people groups, new ones. I think those are some pretty good reasons why new churches and church plants reach new generations, residents, and social groups or new people groups. I think that we've got to address that issue here. We have a community that is ever-increasing with Hispanics, and there is a language barrier here. And the only churches that, most of the churches that they have to attend are churches that none of us would actually go to because so many of them teach false doctrine. And so what are we doing about our Hispanic neighbors? You see, if we plant churches that are multi-ethic, then we have a great chance of reaching them with the gospel. But if we don't even think about it or consider it, What's going on with these people? Fourth, fourth reason why plant churches, and maybe this one will really strike your heart chords because this is the one that demolished me. Fourth, why we plant churches, our community needs them. I'm speaking specifically to us here, the here and now. I want to talk about this. I'm going to give you some stats, and you need to pay real close attention. And I, had, I wrote this sermon two and a half years ago. I had to completely redo it because the stats are a little different today, right? I thought, maybe I can get away with it. No. It's two and a half years. Things have changed in our community. According to the most recent census, and I think this, this, this was done a couple of years ago, so it's probably a little bit inaccurate, but there's no other research to show what the newer numbers are. But according to the most recent census, there are about 520,000 people living in our county or in Stanislaus County. 520,000. There's half a million people that live in Stanislaus County. That's a lot of people. And that's, that's, that's Oakdale, that's Turlock, that's Modesto, that's Ceres, that's Riverbank, that's Salida, not Ripon, that's San Joaquin, that's Denaire. I mean, it's a pretty good-sized county, 520, half a million people. According to the ARDA, that would be the Association of Religious Data Archives, there are 76,000 registered Protestants in this county. Okay, a Protestant would be the opposite of a Catholic. There's a lot of Catholics, a lot more Catholics here, but 76,000. Thousand people who are Protestant or your standard issue evangelical, they would be like us. 76,000 registered Protestants out of half a million people. That doesn't mean that they're all real Protestants and all believers, but when that census came around and that religious survey came around, they checked that box. I'm a Protestant. 76,000. According to citydata.com, the research company, there are about 223 Protestant churches in Stanislaus County. That would be churches like RHC and like Big Valley and Shelter Cove. 
223 Protestant churches in this huge county. 76,000 Protestants. <laughs> now the five or fifth largest Protestant churches in the area are Big Valley, Calvary Chapel, The House, Shelter Cove, and Cross Point. Approximately 12,000 people attend those churches each Sunday. Okay? 12,000 people go to those churches. Maybe a little bit more because some of them have multiple services, but I tried to factor that in. You have 12,000 people going to those churches every Sunday. And then you have to ask yourself, okay, well, what about the other 64,000, let's just say, 64,000 registered Protestants? And again, this is somewhat accurate, but not completely accurate. What, what do they do? Well, they belong to one of three groups. Uh, they belong to the group that attend the smaller churches in the community. Remember, the other are the big five. They belong to a group that go to another county for worship. Maybe they go out of town and go into another county. Maybe they go to Stockton or Ripon or something like that. And then there is the group that basically stay home. They don't go to church at all. The remaining 218 Protestant churches in our county, right? We got the big five, subtract them. The remaining 218 Protestant churches in our county are average-sized at a max capacity of about 150 people. If each of those churches were filled to capacity, that would be about 32,700 people. Add that number to the 12,000 who attend the big five churches, and you have about 44,700 people in church every Sunday. Now that is giving a lot of margin for error because that's thinking that every one of those smaller churches is full and as you look around in this room you realize this church is nowhere near capacity. You just think about that. At the very, very most that the highest level of capability in this county we could have 44,700 people in church on a Sunday if they were to fill every church in this county. But as I said there are 76 thousand registered Protestants. If all 76,000 registered Protestants came to church on a Sunday, there wouldn't be enough churches to accommodate them. There would be 31,000 registered Protestants without a church to go to. That's pretty serious. Now, I get it. I don't think all those people are real Protestants, but they checked a box, and let's just pretend what am I telling you? What I'm telling you is there aren't even enough Protestant churches in the community to minister to all the registered Protestants. There's not even enough churches here for the believers, so to speak. If we desire to plant enough churches to accommodate all the remaining registered Protestants who basically have no place to gather because there's not enough churches, all 31,000 of them, we would have to build three more big valleys, three more Calvary chapels, three more the houses, three more shelter coves, and three more cross points, or 206 RHCs. <laughs> I wasn't that good at math when I was in high school, but for some reason I've gotten better at it. 206 of these? just to get the registered Protestants into a church? Yeah. Whoa. Or three of each of the big ones? Yeah. 
just to accommodate the registered Protestants. I haven't even referred to the lost yet. You know, the other 325,000 who claim no religion and, and the other 115,000 who claim some form of false religion. And just think about this. Do any of us actually believe that 223 Protestant churches in this county would, would be sufficient uh, uh, to effectively reach almost half a million people? The remaining 444,000 people, do we really believe that 223 churches is enough churches to do the job? Are you crazy? I mean, just based on stats alone, we need churches so bad. Oh. Now, I know you can probably cut that number of registered Protestants in half. I, I don't know. I, that's, that's what's registered. That doesn't necessarily mean they're all believers and that they all want to go to church. But I'm basing it on the raw data that we have. And the reality is we don't have enough churches for all the Protestants. We don't have enough churches to reach the other 444,000 people, especially those who are mixed and mingled up into false religion. Two hundred twenty-three Protestant churches in Stanislaus County wouldn't be able to reach four hundred seventy-seven thousand people in a hundred years, or two hundred years, or three hundred years, or four hundred years. <laughs> we are so vastly outnumbered. The church needs to plant hundreds of Bible-believing, reformed evangelical churches in this county, hundreds everywhere. Not just to reach people with the gospel, but to disciple them. What we go back to, to make disciples, baptizing them into the body of Christ. How many more churches would it take to disciple another 50,000 people well, the average church in America is about 80 people. 50,000 divided by 80 is 625. 625 churches at 80 people to disciple just 50,000 people. <laughs> Do I think that RHC needs to plant 625 churches? I don't know. Good night. Why not? How many more churches would RHC like to plant? As many as possible. As many as possible. I think we should begin to pray about planting another church in the very near future. And I know, I know that if you go out there and look at the stats and you ask people about church planting, they would tell us, you're stupid, don't even think about it. You're a tiny church with a tiny congregation. You're not even a full-time minister. Blah, 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 blah. The stats are against you. Don't do it. So what you're telling me is that we have to have X amount of dollars and X amount of people and X amount of resource to do it. We planted this thing with five families and $1.99. That's an American idea. Colby, if you want to go plant a church and you believe God's calling you to do it, 
that whole row will go with you and we'll start something. They're like, I want to stay here. No, you're going with him. Especially you, Phil. We get so bogged down in the, what it should look like and be like and all that. And, and, and what I just see is people just planning churches. I just see the Apostle Paul going all over the place and planning churches. Didn't look like he had much of a plan. Didn't look like he had much of a you know, bank account for that. Didn't look like he had, it, didn't, it, just looked like he, it didn't even look like he had food with him. The man just went to city to city to city and planted churches. We need to get out of that mindset that we've got to have all this and that in place. and We've got to get our branding down. <laughs> Are you kidding me? People are dying and going to hell. That's reality. If you're okay with that, maybe you shouldn't be a part of this church. God wants us to plant more churches. He will provide the leaders the members, and the resources. He has always been faithful. And when we aim to do what he calls us and commands us to do, he supports it. He makes it happen. Now, I'd like to wrap up this message with just a few more stats. I hope that these will help to further persuade you of the necessity of planting more churches in our community. In 2007, Modesto was ranked the worst city in the U.S. to live in. In 2012, a little more recent, Forbes magazine ranked Modesto the fifth most miserable city to live in in the U.S., based on foreclosures and all these other stats. Modesto is, can't make up its mind. It's either number one or number two in auto theft in the U.S. We're always fighting for the title with Fresno. Most of the time we prevail, and the crazy thing is Fresno is a city of 500,000, I think. It's almost three times the size of Modesto, and yet we beat them on these things. Modesto is known as the meth capital of California. That's its title, Methdesto. Mexican cartels use Modesto for narcotic and marijuana distribution. Were you aware of that, that we have Mexican cartels operating here? Sinaloa cartel? I don't know which cartel it is, but they're here. Modesto is a, a major hub for meth distribution. I see the faces of meth every day. I work down at the south end of McHenry. In my 40, almost 45 years of living and being an ex-drug user and stuff like that, I can't think of a drug that devastates people more than meth. It absolutely destroys them. It destroys their soul. <laughs> there is a average of 12,900 violent crimes and property crimes committed in Modesto each year. 
hundred. <laughs> the odds of you being criminally victimized are one in 129. If you live in Modesto. I'm not talking about the other parts of the county. One in 129, which means that you're probably going to be victimized if you haven't already. I know I have. I've had stuff stolen from me at least. Cars broken and doing those things. In fact, I don't know if I ever told you this. It was actually pretty funny. Really stunk at the moment. But a couple of years ago, I came down with pneumonia. And I was pretty much bedridden for a month. And uh, it was about 11 o'clock at night. You know, we lived on the other side of town. And uh, I needed some cold medicine. Rachel wasn't feeling good. So I, you know, I, and I, has anyone in here ever had pneumonia? Oh, my gosh. As soon as you get up, you're like, it just, it just saps your strength. And so 11 o'clock at night, I drove down to CVS to get some more, you know, just stuff to try to keep some of those symptoms down so I could try to sleep. And my main thing with pneumonia is I just kept getting 105 degree fevers every day. It was like just a matter of balancing that. So I go into CVS, you know, and I, I looked like the swamp creature. And I got pajamas on, so I was, should have been at Walmart. But anyways, so, you know, I... That was terrible, but it was true. Uh, so I walked in, you know, and I felt like I was going to die, and I got my cold medicine. I came out, and my stinking car was gone. And I was like, thanks. <laughs> really? I mean, I, the first thing I thought of, you stole a 1989 Saturn? Are you stupid? I wanted to get his number and say, you're going to have to put oil in it every 20 miles. You know what I mean? But here I am, you know, where's my car? I'm not an animal, you know? No car. I call the police. They come an hour later. It was a disaster, you know? And I got the car back like a week later. The only thing they took out of the car was the Slim Jim I had in there, you know? So now I've helped them to steal more cars. 101 and 129, it, it's happening. This, is, this place is 13,000 of these crimes every year. In Modesto, there's only 220,000 people here. That's incredible. Modesto is ranked the 16th most dangerous city to live in in the state of California. 16th. I'm thinking of like Compton and, you know, what's that down there, Watts? Is that down there? You know? I, you know, parts of Oakland. You ever gone to a... Raiders game and took a wrong turn and went, Mommy, they actually like stole your rims while you're driving. <laughs> what happened? You know? That's what I think of when I think of the worst cities, and, but actually Modesto ranks up there with them. Wow. How about homelessness here? Has anyone noticed the amount of transients on the streets? Oh my gosh. I've never seen anything like this. I've been to San Francisco several times, and there's an estimated 12,000 homeless people in San Francisco. I think we've probably got 11,000 here. Even in my own neighborhood, I live, on, I live on college right by Davis. I hear those carts rolling by. They dig through my trash and explode stuff all over the place. I give them grace. remember one time at about 10 o'clock at night, Rachel, take out the trash. I go out there to take out the trash. We have an alley. I do a header because there's a guy passed out drunk laying against my garbage can. <laughs> you know, oh, <laughs> 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 
brought him out, a plate of chicken and all that, and, and said, you know, let me pray for you or whatever, and came back out there, and the plate was empty, and he was gone. That's, I see him on McHenry, up and down McHenry, you know, down at my work. I mean, it's just a, it's just a tough, tough situation. If all these things combine, don't break your heart, you know. The reality is we live in a darkened city. We live in a darkened county between the drug use and homelessness and everything else. The devil has been very, very, very successful here. But I believe. I believe God desires to flood this county, flood this city with the gospel of Jesus Christ and to save some people and to, and to change this place. I believe it. I wouldn't be up here doing this if I didn't believe it. Just had a buddy of mine go plant a church down in a suburb of San Diego where there's white sandy beaches and aquamarine water. And I said, I'll have fun preaching to those crabs down there. Well, it's not that there aren't people down there that need Jesus. They're, they're everywhere, but you don't have to leave Modesto. <laughs> I can't think of a greater mission field than this county. Don't think that I'm the biggest fan of Modesto. I've been here for 30 years. I've spent 29 of those years trying to get out of here. I don't know of anyone who lives here who hasn't tried to get out of here, right? And to leave would be irresponsible. Because people need the gospel. I believe God wants to flood this place with the gospel, with his light. He has done this so many times in so many places throughout history. Jerusalem, Macedonia, Galatia, Achaia, Geneva, Almalanga, Guatemala. Why not here? Why not Modesto? Why not Ceres? Why not Keys? Why not Turlock? Why not Denaire? Why not Salida? Why not Riverbank? Why not Oakdale? And why not in neighboring counties like San Joaquin and in towns like Ripon and Escalon? Do we believe? Do we believe that God can bring revival and reformation to these places too, just as He had done in all of those Grecian? Greco-Roman cities, yes, he can, yes. The question we began with this morning was, why plant churches? I gave you four reasons. Biblical mandate. We want to be true to the Great Commission. New churches best reach new generations, new residents, and new people groups. And by golly, our community needs more churches.